Peace, peace, and welcome. We're glad you're here. This is the Cook on Monday Morning Podcast. I am here with the top cop, <laughs> Chief Scott. All right. How you doing, Sam? I'm, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> good morning to you. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. At Cook on Monday Morning, we believe that if you own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you can change your life. So uh, it is really, um, I'm excited to talk to you because, you know, as a head of law enforcement, one of the heads leaders of law enforcement in the city, um, you have to address and deal with a lot. Um, I know that, you know, I wanted to get into some of the things you're considering around reforms with the city. Um, I want to talk about your career and your story overall. But I, before we get started, I have to ask you um, about those waves. <laughs> and so for all the people who are watching that, that aren't black, you know, <laughs> I'm talking about like the dipping waves that Chief Scott has the best waves of any chief in the country. <laughs> I don't know if I was expecting that one as the first question, but uh, it's all natural. <laughs> it's all natural. So no, 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 no do rag. No, no do rag. No, no Murray's. Do use Murray's. Okay. <laughs> do use Murray's. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I just say it's, uh, you know, our grooming standards are kind of drilled into you. So over the years, I've always kept my hair short since mm -hmm. I started in law enforcement. And uh, it just kind of, you know, you rush it and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it happens over time, as you know. <laughs> well, I used so, to know. You know yeah. I, don't know, I don't know much anymore. So that's really the lightest question to ask. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, Good way to open up. Yeah. All right. So why on earth would you want to be the chief of police? It, well, for me, it was it was a life's work, and um, I don't I didn't come into policing thinking I'm gonna you know be the chief of you know the department. I came in, I started with, with Los Angeles and with LAPD, and I, I didn't I didn't come into it thinking that. I, it was really about I thought I had found something that I believed that I was gonna really uh, enjoy doing, mm -hmm. and it was rewarding from day one, and it's still rewarding. And I was one of these type of guys that just, you know, I just took advantage of opportunities when they came my way. You know, I didn't really have starting out, you know, some grand career path scheme or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, my former department, it was a testing process. So at each level, you had to take a test. You know, I was a training officer. I had to take a test for that. I was a detective. I had to take a test for that. I was a sergeant. I'd take a test for that. A lieutenant. I'd take a test for that. Uh, and then there were different levels of lieutenants. So I had to, you know, do an oral interview to get the you know, next level. And so it was a lot of testing mm -hmm. through through the years. And that was a part of the process. But really, it was about you get to a certain point in your career where you feel like you're ready for more responsibility, uh, which comes with more accountability. And if, if you're ready for it and you, you go for it, and you take the test. That's kind of how my career mm -hmm. uh you know, transpired. And even for the job of, of chief, um, you know, a recruiter contacted me. I was, I was in LA and a recruiter contacted me. Hadn't really thought about branching out and being a chief in another city. I didn't apply anywhere else, but San Francisco was one, probably the one city where I had always wanted to live, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so when the opportunity presented itself, uh, you know, I felt that the timing was right. I had done a lot in LAPD and 
uh, actually, you know, with, with the blessing of the chief of police of L.A. at the time, Charlie Beck, I went ahead and decided to, you know, throw my name in the ring. And, and uh, yeah, thank, thank goodness I did. And things worked out well. So it kind of evolved. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of responsibility. And I don't think, although, you know, as a deputy chief, that's at the top of the LAPD, you can you can imagine what the job will be like, but you really don't know until you're sitting in that seat. I mean, things that I thought that uh, could have never imagined, you know, some of the things that I've experienced as I've been the chief, and good and good and you know, challenging. And you just don't know until you're sitting in that seat what that responsibility and the weight feels like, because it's, it's a huge responsibility. And I, you know, I, I do take it very seriously, and I it's a it's a lifelong uh, yearning for me to be to be doing this work, so I, I'm very blessed to be sitting in this position. I, I feel like I'm, you know, that I've been blessed and uh, very fortunate to be here, and I'm very humble about knowing that this is not promised, it's not entitled. It's uh, takes some work to get here, but um, you know, I'm just a lucky man to be sitting in this seat. It's a great yeah. city. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've always. Um since you came on, we, we've always had a positive rapport and I've seen you at a lot of community events and you've always been uh, respectful and engaging and um, responsive and I appreciate our professional relationship. You know, for, for me, um, I never got to know any police officers until I got elected as a school board member. And historically, the, my entire engagement with the police was like negative. Yeah. You know? like, I got, I was involved in some incident. I didn't call the police, right. um, you know, it was, so it was, it's always been this contentious thing. And, um, but on behalf of keeping our kids safe, you know, it's like the, the law enforcement has to be a part of that right. or some, somebody does harm to another person in our schools, like law enforcement has to be part of that. So, so through that, um, I've really had to build collaborative relationships with, with uh, folks in your department and, and we've had, an opportunity to work together on some things. Right. So um, so when I say, like, why would you want to be chief? I'm really saying, like, why would anybody ever want to be a cop? <laughs> why would anybody black ever want to be a cop, you know? And so, yeah, um, yeah. you know. I mean, where, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up, so my, my dad was in the Army. So my younger, younger years, we moved around all over the world, really. Okay, in Army. Uh, Army, uh-huh. And uh, he, he passed away in, a, in an accident. I was very young, six, five years old, just a, about to turn six. And so we moved back to Alabama. So all of my schooling, school years, elementary through college was in Alabama. Okay, where in Alabama? Uh, Birmingham, oh, Birmingham, okay. Alabama. That's where my parents were from. So um, after college, shortly there, about a year, year and a half after college. All right, but wait, two what, years. what was the relationship with the police like in Birmingham for you growing up? You know, I didn't have a whole lot of contact with the police. I, I, I didn't have any, you know, negative experiences with the police but of course growing up in the south at the time that i grew up or you know early 70s mm-hmm. finished high school in the early 80s i heard a lot of stories and i well i did have a couple contacts with the police so i take that back um nothing too traumatizing or dramatic but uh you know got called boy a few times and that type of thing mm-hmm. uh, but there were, there were some incidents on the other side of that, and I can recall one that really kind of stuck in my head. I was, I, was, I was at my old high school at a, at a party, you know, I was probably 16 years old or whatever. And uh, this was right around the time in, in that city where 
gang banging became a thing. Mm-hmm. And so some gang members came up to the party to crash it, and we kind of chased them away. And uh, but they came back, mm-hmm. and I remember you know kind of fighting with a couple of them. And when they came back, they came back armed. Mm-hmm. And just so happened that the officers were actually two of my buddies that actually ran. They didn't want to fight and they ran, but they ran to call the police. So when the officers got there, they got there at the same time these guys were coming back Mm -hmm. and they were able to catch them with the guns before they did whatever they were intended to do. And I'll never forget that because, you know, I I consider that it just it was my lucky day Mm -hmm. because I was kind of out front, you know, pushing them back and all that. But when the officers came drove up and they were in the backseat of the police car and he had, you know, one of the officers had, you know, one of the guns in his hand. He says, these guys you, that you guys called on, I didn't know my friends had called the police, right? Mm-hmm. No doubt that they were going to probably come back and shoot us up. But, you know, that was really my first real experience where I actually needed the police. Mm-hmm. I didn't call, mm-hmm. uh, but my friends likely did. So I, I that kind of stuck with me because that is really the the essence of i think what this job is all about you know we're there to help people mm-hmm. and here i am 16 year old guy you know i wasn't messing around with gangs or anything like that i was just uh, having a good time that could have been tragic had those officers not got there when they got there and uh who knows what would have happened but i was very fortunate and i was very thankful that the officers got there when they did mm-hmm. but that was you know that was a positive experience i didn't have a whole lot of uh run-ins with the police. And I was into sports and had a girlfriend and worked and stuff. So I didn't really have time to mess around when I was in high school. Yeah, so yeah. didn't really have bad. But I heard the stories, you know, growing up in the South. I remember being told, you know, don't stop on a dark street. Don't let an officer stop you. Drive somewhere where there's people. And when I started driving, uh, drive somewhere where somebody can see you. And, all. you know, these stories were there for a reason because... They, you know, my parents and my uncle, and my mom anyway, my uncles and cousins and stuff that were telling me this, th- this was based on their experiences. And, you know, the South was a different place back then. It was, uh, you know, the police were, 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 were uh, used for different reasons. And mm-hmm. it wasn't all friendly, you know, it wasn't all nice, particularly for, for, for black people in the South and in that era. So mm-hmm. never had that personal experience, but I heard the stories all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that really even today when you talk to uh let's say an african-american who's you know 70 80 years old some of those experiences and memories are very real for them particularly people that are from the south mm-hmm. so as i tell you know this generation of officers sometimes it has nothing to do with us personally it's what we represent and the history of what we represent that really uh starts the conversation of how do we get past that history in mm-hmm. law enforcement mm-hmm. it's real you know it's very real and and, and it, it impacts us today so yeah yeah uh, i know you're very serious about getting past that history like, i i actually saw a, um a interview clip like it was really brief and you were sitting next to carmelo anthony yeah yeah in la yeah i played basketball better than him <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> that says a lot. So, but uh, yeah. and and, the, and it was like on Vice, and I was like, "Oh, I know uh, that's that was must have been years ago." But yeah, uh, that was what uh, was what was that uh, discussion about? It was about this very issue that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So, um, Carmelo Anthony, and it was a it was the NBA Olympic team, both men and women, mm-hmm. 
And one of the, uh, this is, I was a deputy chief in South LA at the time, you know, a lot of, lot of the same issues in policing, a lot of this history that we're talking about. One of the things that we were trying to do at that time was sit down and have discussions. Because mm-hmm. one of the ways to, you know, to get past this, to sit down and talk about it and, and have real conversations. So that was part of what was happening. They, the USA Olympic team uh, came in both the men's and women, and they spent pretty much the day with us. Mm-hmm. And so we had all these different dialogue groups and they were facilitated, you know, like my group, uh, I can't, it was one of the big uh, women stars, uh, she was in my group. Mm-hmm. But we sat down with, you know, teenagers and we just talked about these type of issues. Mm-hmm. And then we did, you know, scenarios and all that. It was a really positive event and, and uh, Carmelo Anthony was one of the leaders mm-hmm. that made that happen. So. Um, yeah, good memories because it 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 serves to build better relationships mm-hmm. when you when you talk about it when you talk about not only past issues but current issues you know we still have some challenges with policing in America there's a lot of things that we got to get our arms wrapped around that we got to get better at and turn the corner on um, disproportionality in terms of who goes to prison who gets stopped who gets searches these are real issues in our city too. So that discussion was meant to talk about some of these issues and how can we work through it? How can we get past it? Um, it was very positive. Mm-hmm. It was very positive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's like um, the interactions that you have with officers, at least that I've had with officers, it will vary vastly just based on who I'm talking to. You know, right. somebody will be like more lenient and then some people are just like straight up assholes. Yeah, and um, I don't know their names. Otherwise, I would tell you, "Hey, you got to get rid of that." <laughs> but let me, let me, let me ask about the force in general, the police force, and then I want to talk to about um, some of the things that the department is grappling with. Like, how, how many officers do we have in San Francisco? Okay, just under twenty three, about three twenty three hundred total. Three hundred, uh-huh. and there's like eleven states. How many stations do we have? Ten stations. Ten right. stations. Mm-hmm. Twenty three hundred officers, mm-hmm. and um, and that that includes every rank of officer, right? Right. So the ten station, we have. You know, 10 stations, but we also police the airport. And we have about 100, just under 160 officers at the airport. Okay. Um, and then in addition to the 10 stations, we have Investigations Bureau. We have the Tactical Unit. And we have uh, the Traffic Company. So not all of our, our officers are at the 10 district stations. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's, you know, there's a lot of things to police in the city. So we were kind of spread spread out. Right. Um how long have you been chief of police in San Francisco? Uh, just over three years. 2017, January of 2017 is when I got sworn in. Okay. Is there a typical tenure associated with uh, chiefs of major cities? You know, it varies. It, it really does. Uh, some average probably somewhere between the three and five year range is when you see turnover. Mm-hmm. Some cities go much longer than that. Other cities much shorter. It kind of depends on what's going on. I mean, this. You know, this job is not for the faint of heart because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very volatile profession in terms of just incidents that can happen. And uh, when it happens under your watch, you know, you, you have to take responsibility for it. You have to you have to be accountable for it. So I definitely understand the landscape of this job. Mm-hmm. Um, some cities have tenure time limits, you know, uh, five years is usually usually about the case. And. That's renewable. Sometimes some cities you can stay as long as you know the will of the people and the electeds will have you. So mm-hmm. San Francisco is like that. There's no time limits. There's no there's no time constraints. I think 
uh, over the history of this department, and somebody did the math, and you know, um, the average was like three and a half years. And we've had chiefs that were here for 15, 14 years, and mm -hmm. we had chiefs that were here for one year. I plan to be here as long as I can. Okay. So as long <laughs> as long as the good Lord, you know, keeps me healthy and uh, you know, it, it, it's it's a good city, and I, I really hope that I can do some good here and have a long, healthy tenure and do you know, leave it better than I found it. It's what, what any chief should wish for. Mm -hmm. And and so when when you came in um, to the department, like what were some of the top things you were looking to accomplish? One of, so when I came in, there was a lot going on in the, in the police department in the city. You know, the city had agreed and the department, you know, my, my predecessor, Chief Sir, had, and Mayor Lee, uh, the mayor who hired me, had agreed to take on a collaborative reform initiative agreement with the Uni United States Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. And basically what led to that, there was you know, a series of you know, things, officer-involved shootings, so... The chief and the mayor had invited the U.S. DOJ to come in and do a top-to-bottom assessment of the SFPD mm -hmm. and you know use of force, you know whether there's you know bias in our policing, accountability, training, uh, yeah, training is one of the big things. You know recruitment and hiring and retention. Mm -hmm. uh, so and community policing. So those are the topics that they looked at pretty much everything. You know they pulled the hood up and looked at the engine. And they came away with some findings and some recommendations, 272 to be exact recommendations, separated in these categories that I just mentioned. It's a huge undertaking. So when I got hired, part of that whole process and hiring process with all of us that applied is the folks that interviewed us, you know, the mayor and the commission, they wanted to know, you know, how we were going to help get us through this reform because it's, it's a huge undertaking. So that was one of the, the main things that in terms of what I came in expecting to help facilitate and help make happen. Um, crime and crime reduction and community safety is always going to be our bread and butter, you know, keeping people safe and trying to reduce crime and prevent crime is always going to be the bread and butter. But the reform if it's done correctly and completed, will actually help us realize our bottom line in a better way. Mm -hmm. Our community policing will be better. Our community engagement will be better. Our accountability will be better. You know, we want to train, hire, recruit, keep our people once we get them through the academy and out in the field. Um, all the reforms are designed to make us a better department. So it's a lot of work. Most cities that undergo major reform efforts takes years. And mm -hmm. you look at uh, our partner across the Bay, Oakland PD, they've been in, under a reform consent decree for uh, over 13 years. Mm -hmm. Like, Yeah, over 13 years. And mm -hmm. my former department, LAPD, was under a, a consent decree. So 13 years of my 27 there, we were under a consent decree as well. And, and very defined things that we had to do to make policing better in that city and same thing in Oakland and other cities that have had that it's a lot of work it takes a lot of money a lot of staffing a lot of commitment and it doesn't happen overnight so I knew that coming in particularly leaving a department where it took 13 years it was intended to take five years in LA it mm -hmm. took 13 mm -hmm. uh, Oakland is still ongoing mm -hmm. so these things take it, you know it takes a lot of time a lot of effort uh, 
the will, and it has to be a will beyond the police department because it takes funding. It takes, you know, technology improvements. It takes equipment. It takes, you know, we want to be on the, on the, on the forefront of policing in San Francisco. So big commitment. Mm -hmm. You do have the will. You know, the funding sometimes doesn't happen. You know, it's not an unlimited pot of money. So even though the city has a really big budget, it's not unlimited. And we're one of many departments. So sometimes we have to stand in line and wait just like everybody else with the funding piece. But we're, we're making some progress. We haven't moved the recommendations to completion the way that we had hoped as quickly, but I knew walking in that it was going to take time. Mm -hmm. About nine months after I uh, was sworn in, because this was led by the USDOJ. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, I'm familiar with the findings too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So nine months into this, the the DOJ decided that they were out of this this work. So they basically said, you know, you're done. <laughs> and so we made the commitment in San Francisco with SFPD that we were going to continue to work, but we had to find new partners because part of the benefit of working with the USDOJ mm -hmm. was they funded the technical assistance. You know, a lot of the, the evaluation or well, all of the evaluation, they paid for it and they did. So when we decided that we were going to continue to do this work, Mm -hmm. We had to secure funding, which is quite expensive. We had to find collaborative partners to to do what the USDOJ was doing. We had to provide and pay for our own technical assistance. So we basically had to start over with a lot of the infrastructure to do this work. Mm -hmm. That took well, over a year. We signed. We actually signed an agreement with the California DOJ that they would be basically the evaluator. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, we're not paying them, they're not paying us, there's no money exchanging hands, but, you know, it costs them. They, they have personnel, lawyers dedicated to, to evaluate our progress. That negotiation for that MOU took, took quite a while. Mm -hmm. uh, we finally got it signed in 2018, and then we had to negotiate a whole new system of how we were going to evaluate. And what we came up with, which I think is a better product, we actually have a set of concrete objectives and compliance standards for each of the 272 recommendations, where before we didn't have that. Mm -hmm. So now we, we actually know where the, where the, where the goalposts are, rather, and, and what we need to do. And it's agreed upon. So California DOJ, we have an independent evaluator that's you know, paid by city funds, uh, Hillard Hines, which is a consulting firm. They write all the reports. California DOJ looks at it with an independent eye, which is a good thing for reform. And then we work together to make it happen. So mm -hmm. we're, we're making some progress. You know, it's, it, we have a standard now of what we call substantial completion. Mm -hmm. When our evaluators look at our work and then they agree with us that it's met the standards that we, we set, we set with them then they deem us to be substantially compliant. Now, as I sit here today, we have 45 of the 272 recommendations completed, mm -hmm. substantially completed, where we're done. We're never done, but at least we're substantially. 42 of the 272. Yeah, and there's another 100 and, I think there's 107 that we've submitted. Mm -hmm. Some of them they've sent back to us and say, we think you guys need to do a little bit extra on this or do a little bit more on this or tweak this or tweak that. So, um, a lot of these recommendations have taken a couple of years, like some of the policy recommendations. 
we've had policies that it took us two years to get before the commission just between all the public input and the uh, work with the California DOJ. Uh, it's taken us a year, two years to get these policies before the commission. So it's a slow process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think everybody would like it to be quicker. We do have a sense of urgency, but it takes a lot of work and it's a slow process. So um, the nice part about it is even though the ones that like the 107 that I mentioned are being evaluated, the work is getting done toward the reform. Mm-hmm. You know, the community meetings, the, the, the infrastructure, you know, adding positions to the department, which takes a budget cycle to do. And those things are being done. So the thing that I try to impress upon, you know, everybody that wants to hear what we're doing is the fact that we're not in substantial compliance doesn't mean that the work is not getting done. We're always working towards substantial compliance. Some of these recommendations will take a couple of years to get done just because of what we need to do to be in substantial compliance. If we have to change a policy, we have to get funding for technology to make technology better. It, you know, the budget cycle. Yeah, it requires a you um, know a tool that you're not in a position to. Yeah, implement. you can't make it happen yeah. instantly. You know, from I'm sure from your, your school board seat, uh, how that budget works. So you have to ask for it. You have to get approved by the board, and mm-hmm. at least we do. And then, like let's say, if we ask for a position, once you get it funded. You have to go through the process of hiring and all that, and that that takes a while. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of work, but yeah. it will make us better. Uh, we're fully engaged, and we're we're moving forward. Mm-hmm. No, that's a long answer to a short question, but well, yeah, well, all right, so it's, it's all good. I think I think you know, um, for people that have been looking at those two hundred and seventy-two recommendations, it's good for them to get an update on um, where that's at. You know, with the where the, where we are as a city right now. Like the hot button issues are about car break-ins, yeah. uh, the police response or engagement around the homelessness issue. Yeah, um, you know there was a there was a recent officer involved shooting in the Mission District, mm-hmm. um, and there's like a uh, so I, I want to kind of like you know talk yeah. about some of those items. Okay. And there's also um, this thing about like a, um, recourse for. Uh, you know, behavior that feels like harassment. Like there's a perception. I want to like, I want to like address, debunk some myths. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. (laughs) It's like if, if, uh, if the police, you came out of LA, like Jesus, you know, like Rodney King, like the, you know, the, the Bloods and the Cribs, they were all sort of like, you know, there's a lot of history around, Mm -hmm. um, and the Black Panthers out in Oakland, right? There's a lot Mm -hmm. of history around communities, responses to police. But if I can rope up into I can start with like car break-ins. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've had my car broken into several times, I'm sure. That's an experience for a lot of San Franciscans. Right. Um, when you call it in, ditch whoever 911 is will tell you to fill out an online survey. Like, no. And I was like, and I had like some cash that was taken out of a bag, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking like, oh, somebody's going to come get some fingerprints. It's going to be this whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the lady was like, no one's coming. No one's coming. Fill out this online survey, and so, um, what is the what is the protocol? Like, what, you know, what's happening around car break-ins? Yeah, so a lot, a lot is happening. So, your experience in in terms of, and that. So, let me let me back up a little bit. Part of the our challenge is we have to prioritize what we respond to and how we respond. Mm-hmm. 
a car break in when the person is gone, uh, and in your situation, you know, if the person's gone when you call, but let's say the person who broke in your car, they're no longer there. Well, let me interrupt because I'm sorry. It's like, it feels like, from what I understand right, for how I feel right now, maybe how other people feel, is now there's no real point in calling the police. You might as well just like get your car window fixed. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I do want to come in and, and address that because there is, and you have to go through the process and, and spend your time doing, you know, making a report. And so when you were, you know, recommended that, you know, told to do an online report, uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is make it as convenient as we can because we know it's nobody, most people don't either have the time or want to take the time after having that experience to have to go to a police station and make a report. Mm-hmm. Um, the volume of car break-ins, we're, we're probably at the end of last year, probably 24,000 or so car break-ins, mm-hmm. which is down from 31,000 two years ago or 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of them happen, is my point. Property crime is, our, is, is, from a numbers perspective, is the biggest number of crimes that we have in this city of property crimes. Our violent crimes is, is not bad for a major city. Mm-hmm. Uh, our property crime has gotten better over the last two years. It's a constant challenge. But getting to your point and your, and your frustration, we have to prioritize. So with the way our dispatch system works, a crime in progress is always going to be a higher priority. Mm-hmm. So, like, if if the caller's calling and said, I'm watching the guy break into a car, break into a house right now, that's going to be a higher priority. But even within that, if if you have calls in the queue and one's, let's say, a robber using a firearm in progress, mm-hmm. another one is somebody breaking into an occupied residence in progress, uh, another one might be a traffic collision, the dispatchers have to prioritize those calls, and we have three priorities, A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. Um, a C priority is the lowest of the three. Mm-hmm. B is in the middle, and then A. A is going to be a crime in progress, a violent crime in particular. That's, uh, you may get dispatch code three where lights and sirens to get there and all that. If it's a shooting or something in progress, that's at the highest priority. Car break-ins, lower. Even in progress, it's going to be lower than a violent crime, but it is a crime in progress, so it's going to be a high priority. If it's an incident that already happened, a burglary of your house, your car's been broken into, everybody's gone, it's basically, you know, what's left to do is take a report to document it. That's going to be a lower priority. The wait time is going to be longer. We'll try to encourage you to to make the report online so you don't have to wait. And it gets frustrating. Now, when you mentioned fingerprints and all that. Yeah. I mean, I had like a whole, I know that's not happening. <laughs> well, it can. So oh, okay. but to, in, in order to do that, we do ask that you bring the car to get fingerprinted. The thing that, and part of this is managing, you know, the expectations of the public, because I think sometimes we watch television shows, CSI and other shows, and we think, you know, all these things are happening. And if your prints are on the outside of the car, you know, the person who broke in your car, it's really hard to to make that case because you you think about it. If I'm an attorney, hey, I, my client was walking by the car and yeah, she touched the car, he touched the car. That mean it broken. So it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Prints on the inside of the car, much more useful in terms of prosecution of a case. We don't solve a whole lot of those cases because oftentimes, just like in your case, 
probably were no witnesses. Mm -hmm. Probably was not a whole lot of evidence, if any. Broken glass, your stuff is gone. And most of the ones that we actually solve is either we solve by MO, by confession, or the officers catch them in progress. In progress. Because so somebody let me, you know, let me ask you about a related situation. Your lab got your laptop gets taken or a device gets taken. There's like a tracker on it. And so you see where it is and you call the police like, hey, it's six blocks away. I, like, I see the thing like and the police don't respond to that. Yeah, no, we should, we should be responding to that. Okay. We should be responding. And I, I've seen enough of our reports to know that officers will follow up on that. Look, most of us came on this job to help people. And mm -hmm. when somebody gets victimized, you know, the hair rises on the back of our neck and we want to go and get that person that victimized them. So, okay. Our, you know, That's not consistent with some of the stories that I've heard, but I will follow up with those people and say that the police should be responding to that. Yeah. And, and if, and if we didn't, you know, that's the call that we need to make to the station or to a supervisor so we can follow up on that because mm -hmm. we respond to those. And we solve, I was going to say, the other way that we solve crimes is just that. Mm -hmm. You know, find my phone, find my, you know, Apple MacBook and all that. We've solved a number of crimes mm -hmm. by doing that. And mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that necessarily that the person who broke into your car is going to get charged with breaking into your car when we find your phone in their possession. Mm -hmm. But possession of stolen property is still a crime as well. So it gives us a little bit of teeth to at least do some enforcement and, and try to hold people accountable. So please, um, to the public that's listening, mm -hmm. if that's the case, please call because we do follow up on that. And mm -hmm. like I said, officers, we, we came with this job to, to make a difference and help people. So if, if you or anybody else didn't get that level of service, that's something that we want to know about. Mm -hmm. Well, and then, well, the, the unit that will actually address this, right? Because I know everyone doesn't do everything that comes up, right? And right. so for someone that is, has some stolen property or they were, you know, like how big is that unit that actually, is that every patrol officer you see or is it a special group that does that? Yeah, so to the officers that will respond to the call for services, more like we're going to be a uniformed patrol officer. Mm -hmm. We do have a, a unit at our investigations bureau, burglary unit, mm -hmm. and one of the things that they do is they work car break-ins, but they really focus on when we identify a series or a crew, which a lot of car break-ins are happening because of crews that are doing this for a living to make right. money. When we identify that that's the case, those cases will go to the burglary unit and they'll try to put together these cases. Mm -hmm. A lot of the people that the burglary unit when we do end up making an arrest, they're responsible for multiple crimes. Mm -hmm. And we believe, and we, we track, you know, we track this, um, that a lot of the, the, the people that we, we believe and know are prolific by their history, um, when they are in custody, you see car break-ins in the city go down. And mm -hmm. we, we've tracked this over the years, so... You know, these crews are very, very potent and they are prolific. So we try to focus on that and get, you know, more for more mileage, more bang for the buck, if you will. Because I, those are the folks that are doing the most damage, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And and their crews, this is all they do. Mm -hmm. They go from city to city, breaking into cars. You know, we've talked to East Bay Police Departments. We've talked to LAPD, where people are breaking in cars up here and then, and then they get caught in LA and vice versa. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is, it's a big business. Yeah. You know, it's a big business that brings in a lot of money because 
because most time, most of the time, they're not taking the property for their own use. They're going to sell it. Yeah, yeah. And so, with I, I saw the report and the news about, um, I think the police commissioner said something to the mayor about finding another way to address calls about homelessness in the police department uh, engaging. We, can you explain that? And yeah, yes, I, I agree with the sentiment that you know <clears throat> we need people better trained. But go ahead, if you. So the commission uh, put forth a resolution mm-hmm. adopted by the commission. And basically the, the, the gist of it is the commission is saying that the police department shouldn't be the first level of response for an issue that only deals with homeless-related issues. Mm-hmm. And um, I agree with that. And I think probably the vast majority of the police officers agree with that. However, what would the, be a more appropriate? Sorry to interrupt you. What oh, would no. be a more appropriate first response? Well, we have social services agencies and throughout the city, you know, you, you have and, and they do respond. I don't want no disrespect to those agencies. They do respond. Uh, I think the way we're set up, mm-hmm. the way our dispatch system is set up, you know, we, the police and fire, for the most part, and then public works, all the calls come to us. Mm-hmm. You know, the social service agencies aren't a part, for the most part, of the dispatch system. So you call 911, that's not, if you call 911 because you see somebody that's, let's say, homeless, they're, in your opinion, in a mental crisis, they may be mentally ill or at least acting like there's some mental impairment or mental illness, uh, that call is not going to go to clinicians or public health professionals. Now, we, we have a unit uh, and we have many, many officers over half of our department that are trained to do to to in, in crisis intervention techniques mm-hmm. that can respond and and handle the call appropriately for, for for the level of our training. But if there's not a crime, if there's not violence, if there's not somebody's life in danger, the wish and the hope is is that clinicians can go to that and be the first responder to deal with that person's issues mm-hmm. before they become violent. Now, that's not the way we're set up, and because usually that call is not going to get made until it's a crisis. Mm-hmm. And, and roughly, ballpark, what level of calls are, is the police department getting related to these issues? Our data shows, and this is an approximation, but about 25%, about a quarter of our calls are related to homeless-related issues. Um, a lot of the behavioral issues are either filled by substance abuse, particularly, you know, hard drugs, meth, mm-hmm. heroin. Well, most people kind of nod when they are, are taking heroin, but meth in, in particular causes, I think it, it exacerbates some of the mental illness conditions. So you get people going into psychosis on a meth-induced binge or whatever. They're usually going to be more erratic, more volatile, you know, that type of thing. And then we have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, the, the, the hope and the, is that we can get service providers to be a part of that, to be more part of that first response to where our officers aren't getting involved unless it's a crime, unless there's somebody's, you know, personal safety is at jeopardy or unless uh, it's a policing issue. Mm -hmm. But that's not the reality of how we're set up in this city and most other cities. So... That was the the spirit behind that police commission resolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the where, where I stand on the topic in general is that um, I want people who are struggling to get the help that they need yeah. and that need to be hospitalized, and I want them to deal with somebody that's 
trained and um, well equipped to support somebody. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think we've asked our officers to sort of be all things to all people. Um, and there are some things that are like, that we, you know, if we, if we find other ways to engage different departments to address ongoing issues or deal with things at the root, root causes, we should, we should definitely um, uh, emphasize that as a city. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I definitely agree with you. And I think the majority of our officers agree with you on that. But, you know, they, we don't have an option when we get the calls. We have to respond and we do the best we can. We, one of the things that I think this city has done really well is we do work together really well. And, you know, the Healthy Streets Operations Center, that was the concept behind that. It wasn't to solve the, the housing crisis. It wasn't to, to house everybody that's homeless. And I think a lot of people have misconstrued and conflated that issue. The spirit behind the Healthy Streets Operations Center was to bring all those entities into the room to be a part of the response so we can get, you know, the hot team or DPH clinicians to be a part of the response. Mm -hmm. So officers don't have to. Mm -hmm. That was the spirit behind it. But, you know, there there is a component that leads to enforcement there. Um, when we get calls for service, you know, people get frustrated because they walk out of their doors and or they can't get out of their driveways because there's tents and all that. You know, we respond and we have to, mm -hmm. and we should. Mm -hmm. But who do we bring with us, mm -hmm. you know, to, to make that situation better is a question. And who do we have the capacity, the bandwidth for all the appropriate service providers that we're talking about to be a part of this solution? That's what we're trying to build up as a city. And the HSOC concept is a good one. And we had some initial success, then it started to, to stall a little bit. Uh, right now we're in the process of kind of recalibrating what we need to do to work together better. Um, and there's a lot of work being put into that. But the whole idea is let's not make the police officers the tip of this response. Mm -hmm. That was the whole idea behind it. You know, we're out there, we get the call still. Um, but the, in an ideal world, what our officers try to do is get the appropriate services to the people that need them mm -hmm. as a part of that response. Now, the other side of this equation is, you know, the tolerance for what we see on the streets, you know, is, is, is that a very high level of the, or the frustration with what we see on the streets in the city? And what I'm talking about is when you have uh, large encampments with just, you know, personal property and things on the streets that become unhealthy, it's a problem and people call and a lot of our calls are geared toward that. Mm -hmm. We have to get the other city entities in, in the mix on that. But the question is, how are we going to address it? You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. that that's different from people not having housing because you can be homeless and, and, and not infringe on somebody else by putting excessive personal property on the sidewalks where people are you know, having to walk in the streets to get around them and stuff. And that's what we try to manage. I, I totally, it's not a crime to be homeless. It's not a crime. And when you're out there living on the streets and you have personal property, you got to put it somewhere. Mm -hmm. The question is, how, how can we arrive at a solution where we can manage while we try to get people in a better place? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, that's, that, and that's the challenge. And that's really what we try to do. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I mean, you know, and we, we, at the school district, we get an increasing incidence of um, in campus near schools. Right. And and sometimes there's like needles. Right. You know, and parents and like janitorial staff and 
they're wondering like yo like what is the problem like, you know? i know and so the you know we, we we talked about these things around um zones you know like we we have cannabis that just came online mm -hmm. and we have um footage uh requirements for what can be near a school right um and you know with when, when we're trying to wrap our arms around people that are struggling and we're considering you know the street presence and the impact on our kids it's always like a good place to start yeah like how do we avoid situations like that you know um i don't want to keep you too long you guys you, right. you gotta it's go fight crime <laughs> <laughs> and all of that and yeah. uh and i know you take all of that really seriously um i do want to get into the before we go you know I, I so so mario woods right um when that happened it, it broke my heart and i don't i didn't know him directly um you know a lot of people in the community knew who he was and and Growing up in the city, you obviously see incidents of violence. You know, I was robbed at gunpoint in the city, right? Mm. I was like, um, or and I have friends that were that were killed, like in the neighborhood yeah. growing up, and um, and so uh, gun violence is something that our community grapples with. And when you saw the video of uh, Mario, it seemed um, like completely inappropriate response. Um, so. There was there was that that happened, and you know, so the city. Whenever whenever there's an incident, um, the chief goes and do, does a community meeting, mm -hmm. and uh, you just had this. The thing the incident with Mario was before your time. Mm -hmm. uh, you just had one that came up with uh, a gentleman that wasn't fatally assaulted right. in the Mission District. Um, I said a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know. When, when when this happens and and the chief has to go to these meetings um like like what what is the sentiment of the department around you know what happened with mario or and what's been what's been if you can share a little bit about your experience what it's like to to step into these spaces and talk about like police action when it involves um a shooting uh, very they're, they're very difficult situations on all sides um First of all, the particularly when somebody loses their life, you know that impacts that person, of course, but the families and the friends. And then when it's captured on video, you have this, you know, this trauma to the community. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, our our hope is that we can not have these happen at all. And, and I'll get into that in a second uh, of what we're trying to do to to reduce officer-involved shootings, but they're, they're tough. And they're tough on the officers. Mm -hmm. um, so you got this situation where nobody comes out a winner. And then you have the process of the investigation and the findings and whether or not charges are going to be filed or whether or not it's in policy or out of policy, which is all a part of the process. And for the ones that are, you know, the most challenging are the ones where there is... Um, strong feelings on one side or the other of the issue of whether or not it's legal, whether or not it's, you know, within uh, the what the officers should be doing or department policy. And it, it's, I got to tell you, it's tough. So when we, when we have these meetings, these town halls, because we, we, the SFPD, we have town halls after any of our officer involved shootings, whether a person is struck or not struck, mm -hmm. whether they're, you know, alive or if, even if they're not shot, 
we, we still have a town hall. One of our purposes is to be as, tra as transparent as we can be. You know, understanding that when we have these town halls, we have them within 10 days of, of the incident. So at the beginning of an investigation, it's, it, most times, all the times since I've been here, uh, and even in, in the last department, and we didn't do this in the last department, by the way, we do it here uh, with town halls, it's not appropriate to, you don't have all the information. You know, you're 10 days into the investigation. Oftentimes you've just interviewed witnesses, officers, or you're waiting to interview officers. You don't have the ballistic reports, the evidence reports. So what we try to do is just put out the facts. And we try to do that in a way that's not judgmental in terms of uh, the, the person was wrong or the officer was right or vice versa because you don't have all the facts. And the last thing that you want to do is come out and make a judgment. Now, some of these things, you know, just the facts speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, now that we have video, it really puts this, these, these shootings in a, in a different, whole different context than it did in the past. Now, our, our department policy is, particularly on the OIS, officer involved shooting, um, we will release the video unless three, one of three things are, are, are happening. If there is a chance that releasing the video is going to put either the officers or somebody else's safety in jeopardy, we won't release it. But we'll explain to the public why we're not releasing it. If there's a chance that releasing a video will compromise the investigation, uh, we won't release it. Mm -hmm. And if there is a legal reason that we can't release it, for instance, in some cases, if there's a situation where, you know, kids are involved or something like that, we either have to digitize the juvenile or we may not release it at all, depending on the complexity. If it's some sensitive investigation that or uh, something on the video that legally by law, we're not permitted to release it, we won't. But we explain that to the public. Yeah. Uh, since I've been here, there's only been once, one time that we did not release video. And it was, it was because at this particular case, an officer was actually shot. We had people, who, the suspects outstanding, uh, 10 days into it, there was just too much information that would have jeopardized that investigation. We didn't really know who the other people were, you know, we were looking for them. And, I, and that was the only time since I've been here that we did not release a video. Mm -hmm. All the rest of the incidents we have. So it, that gets back to transparency though. So what we try to do is we try to be transparent. We try to explain the process because there's a lot of investigative processes in, in this city mm -hmm. with the shooting. This city more than other cities because we have the SFPD investigation. Mm -hmm. Now, we just signed an MOU with the district attorney's office last year where they are the lead on looking into whether the officer's actions are legal. Mm. Before that was an SFPD lead, and we turned the case over uh, to the district attorney for evaluation. Now, their investigators actually are the lead on that, so it's their investigation. Mm. We have a Department of Police Accountability, DPA. They do an investigation. Mm. If there's a death involved, you have the medical examiner's office that they do their investigation. So you've got all these things that are happening at once. Very complex and a whole lot of information to be processed and, and vetted out. So 10 days into this incident, you know, we're not going to have all the facts. So what we do try to put out 
is let's put out what we can so the public at least knows, you know, what happened. And then we'll let the rest of the process play out. It's difficult. Um, these cases draw a lot of emotion. Either way, um, there is best, best case scenario, you know, we avoid them by not getting in those positions. And that's what a lot of the reform, you know, one of the categories, as I mentioned earlier, is use of force. And we changed our use of force policy right before I got here. That's made a difference in my opinion. You know, we, we, we are one of few departments that actually track and write use of force reports anytime we point a gun at somebody. A lot of departments don't do that, but what, what that's done for us over the years, it's allowed us to analyze that data, analyze the incidents in which we point guns, and actually we put better training in place to deal with some of the issues that we've uncovered from that analyzation. Mm -hmm. So here's the results, and here's what the reform really speaks to in terms of use of force. 2016, we had about 3,700 uses of force. That's including 2016, I think we had two officer-involved shootings where people lost their lives. Uh, 2019, that number was down to less than 2,000 use of forces. And over the last three years, 60% of our use of forces involved involve the pointing of a firearm, right? In 2016, that, was, that number was 70, almost 70%, it was like 69.5%. So out of the you know, 3,700 or so, mm -hmm. um, 2,500 of our use of forces were pointing firearms. Mm -hmm. That number has been reduced to about 540 mm. this, this last year. Wow. So we have dropped from 2,500 to, to 500 pointing firearms. To me, that's just, the calculus says that the less times you point guns at people, the less of a likelihood that you're going to have to use a gun. Mm -hmm. So that's part of, you know, that's part of what we're doing to reduce OISs or arson involved shootings. But, you know, here's, here's a, a stat that I'm not proud of then uh, we want to make better. But the biggest demographic of people that have guns pointed at them are African-Americans. Mm -hmm. So if we can reduce that. Mm -hmm. We're going to reduce the number of African-Americans by, by, by the math, you know, that have a likelihood of being shot by the police. Mm -hmm. We're going to reduce um, some of the friction with the community. You know, it's not a pleasant thing to have a gun pointed at you. I don't care what you're doing, mm -hmm. whether you're right or wrong. Right. So that's what reform, you know, part of this reform that we're doing, the collaborative reform, that's what, it, that's what it's about. When you think about going from 2,500 incidents of pointing of guns to, you know, 500 in a matter of, three years, mm -hmm. that's significant. Mm -hmm. That is a significant accomplishment. And I, and I think, you know, as, as we answer and, and face accountability for the public, it's really important for the public to know that the reform, we're seeing change, we're seeing incremental change. And that's something that we all should be proud of. Is it perfect? Is it where we want it to be? No, but it ain't where it was. And mm -hmm. that's a good thing. So, you know, that that's, Part of it. Now, I want to get, you asked, asked a specific question about kind of the outcome of these, these investigations. Yeah, I know, I know, I know generally that like, um, you know, like officers will defend 
like, you know, in the case of um, Alex Nieto, Mario Woods, um, the community responded to that in a very like, um, you know, it was, it was, everyone was wrapped up in an emotional way. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, and, and since those, and that led to a whole hunger strike, you know, right. like a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement is in response to police involved shootings. Um, and as far as I know, so that was sort of in the past. You, you've had your most recent one about right. the one in the mission. So if you can speak yeah. to that, then I can. Sure, sure. So that, so that one is, of course, you know, the investigation is ongoing. All those components that I mentioned are still happening. Mm -hmm. um, this one, and what we, what, when we had the town hall, we showed the video, and what the video showed was the officers responding to the call uh, as they're you know, driving up to a corner. The the uh, Mr. Hampton, the young man that was eventually shot by the officers, basically you know approaches the car very rapidly and aggressively, and then you see uh, the officers get out, and you see a confrontation, physical confrontation between Mr. Hampton and the officers, in which one of the officers is hit several times in the head with a bottle. Hmm. Um, there is, there, there is, um, <laughs> the, what the video shows, and I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way, because I don't want to misquote or what the video shows is the officer that was struck by the bottle is actually trying to get away from Mr. Hampton. And what you see in the video is Mr. Hampton is actually chasing the officer. Mm -hmm. After that, you know, the, his partner f chases behind the two of them, and that's when, uh, when they get up the road a little bit. It's not very far as far as the, the, the chase piece. That's where the off-involved shooting occurs. Mm -hmm. Now, it, some members of the community were very upset about that. Others weren't, you know, in terms of how the situation went down. It still has to be adjudicated, but the point that we wanted the public to see when we showed the video and we actually showed it in full, in full speed and then we showed it in slow motion because there was some dispute over whether or not, number one, that Mr. Hampton had a bottle. The video uh, showed that he had a bottle and the video also showed that he used a bottle to hit the officer. There was also you know, discussion about whether that the officers were in pursuit of Mr. Hampton and that uh, whether or not he was armed with the bottle at the time when the shots were fired. The video shows how that played out as well. So what we wanted to do at this point in investigation is just put the video out. Now, people will make their own opinions. There is a lot that has to happen in terms of investigation. There were witness statements and uh, we've interviewed those witnesses. The DA's office has interviewed those witnesses. And there's, in a not too distant future, uh, there'll be findings by the police department on whether administratively that case is within, or that incident and the officer's actions are within police department policy. Mm -hmm. There'll be findings by the district attorney's office on two things. Number one, whether or not Mr. Hampton violated law with his actions. Secondly, whether the officers were within the law with their actions. And so all that remains to happen, but where we are right now is at least the public has the facts, you know, at least what we can release. And they have been able to make their own assessment about whether they think this is uh, possibly within 
a justifiable, reasonable action by the officers or not. Mm -hmm. And that's why we do this, because when you don't put any information out there, what tends to happen is people will make up their own information. Mm -hmm. Um, We just try to show the facts. People can draw their own conclusions based on what is out there right now. And then at which time these investigations are completed, the district attorney's office in the past has done a really good job of actually putting out a full report on why they decided what they decided. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit trickier for us to do that because of state law with th- these these investigations are considered personnel records. And by state law, we, we're not alone in this. If we, any other department in the state cannot release personnel departments. So we're just like all the other departments, we, we're, we're bound and guided by state law. What we do try to do, and the you know, police commission, as much as they can do, is, is put out what we can. Now, there's a new law in effect this year. Uh, they, the state Senate bill was 1421. It's called the transparency law, where now we have to disclose a lot more information than what we could disclose in the past. So we're still barred by, uh, uh, from putting out personnel records. But in terms of officer-involved shootings, the videos have to be released within a certain time frame, uh, no later than 180 days, unless there's a reason, you know, investigatively that is going to jeopardize the investigation or, or prosecution on either side of that issue. There's the files have to be released, mm-hmm. um, and that law is retroactive, so you can request any file any case from any officer involved shooting in anywhere in the state. Um, I can tell you we're backlogged because January 1st, when this law came into place uh, last year, we got requests for thousands of records. And we keep this up, keep this mic. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. We had, we had requests for a lot of records. So okay. we just, you know, we're backlogged. We're still trying to catch up. But but the law is there, number one. And the law is meant to, to make this process more transparent so the public can see what's going on, can make up their own minds about some of these issues. And, and I understand the spirit of the law, but it's a big change and, yeah. and it's a lot of work. So that's what, how we try to approach it. You know, at the end of the day, uh, a decision has got to be made and sometimes, you know, right or wrong or however that decision falls, somebody probably is not going to be happy. Right. So, you know, I, I try to just focus on what is our policy and that be the guide in terms of an administrative decision. And then whatever the district attorney decides, he or she decides. So mm-hmm. yeah. we, we have to just go with that. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you doing this interview. I, I always end talking about two topics and um, and, you know, you are uh, one of the city's leaders. I always end talking about leadership and legacy. Um, so. Do you have any guiding principles when it comes to leadership? I do, um, and they're basic principles. Number one, you got to be, you got, you have to be, you have to have integrity. Mm-hmm. You know, because the people don't believe in you as as being an upright person, a person with integrity. You're not going to be able to lead. Um, the second thing is try to lead with a uncompromising moral compass. Mm. You know, there's a lot of influences that can influence, you know, people's decisions, whether it be political decisions, self-serving decisions, 
uh, trying to be popular or, you know, or trying to be tough or whatever, you got to throw all that out of the window and you got to leave with, with, you know, morality and a moral compass. You know, you, you, have, you have to have a moral compass. And when you make leadership decisions based on that, most of the time, whether people like your decisions or not, they will respect it. And I think when you earn respect, you can lead. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, you know, I don't, it, it's, it's really, I mean, there's more to leadership than that, but I think those three core principles really guide me. And, and, and you know, I, I, I sleep pretty well at night. I don't you know, look over my shoulder mm-hmm. because I try to use those principles and making decisions and leading people. And, you know, you're going to try to do what's right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and when you do that, you know, you have the conviction of not getting caught up in to other things that may influence your decisions in a negative way mm-hmm. or in the wrong way. So Okay. Okay. And legacy. So I, I named my company after my great-grandfather, Luther Harris. It's called the Luther Harris Holding Company. He came to San Francisco in 1947, you know, with a sixth-grade education, yeah. uh, bought homes for him and all of his children. Uh, the home I was raising on Oak Street, a few blocks away, is the house he bought. Yeah, wow. And um, so his legacy is important to me. Um, how do you think about legacy in general? How do you think about your legacy? Biggest legacy. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to say. <laughs> this is his uh, dictionary. This is oh, my wow. grandfather's dictionary. Oh, man. And wow. this, this is, uh, these are his wife's chairs. Really? Yeah. Wow. His ways were cooler than yours, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, legacy. Uh, how do you think about legacy? Uh, first of all, there's two sides to that and for me. The, the biggest legacy is, you know, my kids, my family. Mm-hmm. Leaving a legacy of, of being a good parent. Good husband, good father, and raising kids that are going to be good people and productive people in terms of what they're able to contribute to society. That, that's first and foremost the most important legacy to me, mm-hmm. just like your grandfather was to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, if I could be that person, um, I think that would be the most important that, you know, whenever I have grandkids, that they can sit down and have an interview like this and say great grandkids great grandkids you know? <laughs> and, and 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 that that legacy carries forward for generations because of who he was and what he did for your family mm-hmm. so that's that's the most important thing in terms of professionally you know i i would like to be thought of and remembered as just a person that made a difference and, and i know that's very broad but oftentimes you can tell the people that really leave a legacy. I mean, I'm not looking for a statue or a signature or a building name after me. Here's what I'd like to see. Some of the things that we're putting in place right now, if they're still in place 20 years from now, then I, I know I've done my job the right way. Because oftentimes, you know, leaders and people come into organizations and companies and they have great ideas and grand plans and, you know, it's all the buzz while they're there. And as soon as they go, it's like, let's get rid of this. You know, when you really do something that's worthwhile and you make a difference, it lasts beyond you. And that's what we're trying to accomplish here. It's not about me. It's about really putting the police department in in a better place. And those things transcend to the next generation and the generation after. That's when you know you've really done some some good work. Mm -hmm. And so I just hope to do that. I think some of the work that we're doing uh, will do that. I think it'll transcend my time here and hopefully you know, far into the future. And if I could do that, you know, I'll be happy with that. Yeah. Well, I support you. All right. I want to see you Thank succeed. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you, Appreciate you inviting me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. 
All right. All right. Thank you. Peace, peace. And thank you for listening to another Cook on Monday morning. I'd like to thank the chief of police, Bill Scott, for uh, taking his time to address a lot of very serious issues that uh, we're trying to grapple with as a city. What is our best response to supporting our unhoused neighbors? What type of reforms are being enacted to you know, make sure that people aren't being unfairly targeted or we have real recourse as a community if there's an officer involved shooting? I don't envy the position of any police officer. If there's a dangerous situation that happens, I think as a city we do expect our officers to address the situation and to keep people safe. So I've always deeply believed in criminal justice reform. I think if we have leadership at the police office that is also interested in reform, we're gonna find great partners to ensure that that happens. I'd like to thank him for coming. I'd like to thank the people that made this podcast possible, Mr. David Topete. I'd like to thank Fernando Cinco Marquez for editing the newsletter. I'd like to thank all of you, um, people that have been subscribing and sharing the podcast. Uh, we are growing. It's because of you, and I appreciate you. I'd also like to thank all the people that make San Francisco the incredible city that it is. You know, all of our teachers, our public uh, service workers, the people that keep our streets clean, our streets safe, our first responders, our uh, people that work in the fire service. Uh, I'd like to thank our meeting drivers and the people that are building something to improve our city. Thank you. This podcast is for you. It's also for people in cities like Oakland, LA, Houston, Dallas, New Orleans, Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, New York, Miami, Jackson, anybody anywhere that's looking to change their lives by changing how they think about Monday morning. Thank you for tuning in. I look forward to hearing from you. You can reach out to me via Twitter at Stevon Cook and let me know what you're enacting to, to change your Monday morning. Peace, peace, and we out.